1 Corinthians chapter 12 will be our sermon text this morning. And though we will not spend our time in all of it, I do want us to read uh, verses 1 through 31, the whole chapter. So, beloved, hear the word of the living God as we read together. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, there, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. 
Well, may God add his blessing to the reading of his word and let's ask for his help before we dive in this morning. God, we praise you again for all that you are to us in Jesus Christ. Our prayer is simple, O oh God. In fear and trembling, we pray together that you would have your way with us now as we consider your book. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've noted almost every week from this pulpit as we've walked through this book together, the congregation in Corinth has been plagued by several issues. And one of those major issues is division. They've been divided over teachers. We go back to chapter 1. I am of Paul. I am of Paulos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. They were divided over wisdom. Many were boasting in the pursuit of worldly wisdom, the kind that leads to sinful behavior and division. They were tolerating sexual immorality just a few chapters back, and they were divided over business practices, and people in the congregation were suing people in the congregation, which certainly is divisive. They were eating food offered to idols, which in a sense they were caring more about themselves than the others in the congregation. And when we get to chapter 11 two weeks ago, the division has now entered the corporate worship service. We saw that with head coverings, how the culture crept into the congregation. Last week, it was the Lord's Supper and social status and the division that was there. Paul was not encouraged by these things. So much so that he says in, in verse 18 of chapter 11, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. He's not encouraged by this division. So it's no wonder now that we're in chapter 12 that Paul is once again concerned with division and tensions among the fellowship. And now he's going to address the use of spiritual gifts in the life of the body. The Corinthians were confused. They were confused about spiritual gifts and how they were to be used and what it meant really to be spiritual. Or we could say it another way, the Corinthians needed help understanding true spirituality. Now as we said a couple weeks ago when we began this study in the worship service in Corinth, these things, head coverings, Lord's Supper practices, and now the gifts, were stirring up division and confusion. They were distorting the testimony of this church to the outsiders, and it was confusing the brethren. And those were the things, the areas of concern that Paul was concerned with in this book as we think about those things, the honor of God, the, the body life, how they were edified, and the testimony of the church to the outsiders that would come in and to the outsiders out there. So he's concerned for God's glory, the edification of the saints, and the testimony that this local assembly has. Well, beginning in chapter 12 and running all the way to chapter 14, Paul's going to deal with this subject of spiritual gifts. And if you've been around the Christian life long enough to know, it shouldn't be shocking to you that there's a lot of controversy stirred up with the gifts. And if we go uh, to, the, to the far most crazy side, it's not hard for us to understand. We turn on the television set and we see these TV preachers speaking in tongues, laughing in the spirit. I have no clue what that means. Unintelligible languages, healings. It's not hard for us to understand that 
there is an epidemic in our evangelical days on what it means to be truly spiritual. I can remember a few years ago when we were in Ethiopia for the adoption, and day two, doctor's office, Ethiopia, we walk in for some medical stuff, and there on the TV set, in front of all those Ethiopians who were in the waiting room, a TV preacher healing a line of people, and they were all glued to the television set. Well, is that true spirituality? Is that authentic spirituality? Well, for our study this week and next in this chapter, I read it all, but we're basically going to consider the first 11 verses this morning. Pastor Nathan will preach next week, so I can either set him up for success, or as I told him as he left for Nigeria, you might be answering many questions that I've left for you. But our focus this morning will be mainly verses 1 through 11 as we consider marks of true spirituality according to what Paul is saying. Namely, how the Holy Spirit gifts the church to exercise those gifts for the glory of God and the good of his people. So if we just read and reread those first 11 verses over and over and over again and it falls apart, Paul's main aim comes from verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul is saying something by this verse about true spirituality. What is authentic Christianity? Who are those who are given the manifestation of the Spirit? Paul says to each one. We have to consider verses 1 through 3 to answer that question. For what Paul's saying here about the gifts? Who gives the gifts? We'll look at verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he will. So we'll consider that verse. So if we take this whole passage, understanding that seven is Paul's target, his aim, the point, I want us to consider three points together as we consider these verses. One, true spirituality is centered on the rule and reign of Christ. We'll see that in verses one through three very plainly. Number two, true spirituality manifests the Spirit. That's what Paul's saying in verse 7, and he's actually saying that from verse 4 through 11. And true spirituality seeks to lovingly serve others. We get that from the end of verse 7. Those gifts are for the common good. So three points for us this morning. Number one, true spirituality is centered on the rule and reign of Christ. We could say that true spirituality, authentic spirituality, really Christianity, that's what I mean by that word, Christianity is centered on Christ. It's Christocentric. You may say, well, Jim, I understand. He's talking about the gifts, and I see the Holy Spirit, but what's all this talk about true spirituality? Well, let's read verses 1 through 3 again. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Well, we can tell by the language when he starts off by saying now concerning spiritual gifts, he's dialing them back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Remember, there was a letter. They had some issues. They were asking Paul questions. Now concerning. He's answering those questions. He's responding to this topic, evidently spiritual gifts. He does not want his hearers to be unaware. He doesn't want them to lack information. Lacking information often leads to wrong practice, and that's what's happening here. 
This is what Paul's saying. They were unaware or lacked information about the gifts. They were coming to a wrong conclusion about the gifts. Now the language in the original, when we think about this very first verse, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, it is actually literally, but concerning the spirituals, brethren. But concerning the spirituals, brethren. Now it could mean spiritual things. It could mean spiritual matters. It could mean spiritual people. And Paul is using a different word here. He's using pneumeticon, which is the word here. He's, he uses the word charismata, where we get charismatic. He begins that in verse 4. So we actually add the word gifts in our translation. Now, there's a lot of people that debate, what does it mean? What does Paul mean by that, by that word? People way smarter than me. And they debate about it. But here, based on the fact that Paul uses the word that he's using in verse 1 11 times in the book of Corinthians to mean a lot of different things about the Holy Spirit, I take that word to mean spiritual things. Now concerning spiritual things, brethren. So as we think about spirituality, Paul is speaking about spiritual things here, which spiritual gifts certainly fall under spiritual things, just like spiritual people do as well. Well, Don Carson in a lecture on this passage, noted that perhaps the question that Paul received in chapter 7, we don't know what it was, but maybe something like this. This is what's going on. Is it really true that spiritual manifestations constitute unfailing evidence of spiritual people? Is it really true that spiritual manifestations constitute unfailing evidences of spiritual people? Now you can see where that would cause a great bit of division. You have some who have these super gifts Right, those on the more charismatic side, perhaps asking for affirmation, Paul, Paul, because I have these gifts, this thunderous manifestation, doesn't it mean that I'm spiritual? And then you have others, perhaps on the other side, maybe the, the less non-charismatic folks, wanting to know, is that what it means? Do those gifts point to spirituality? Are those people more spiritual because they have those gifts? And certainly their pagan backgrounds, which was highly spiritual and very religious, to use that term loosely, only fueled the way they thought of themselves. There seems to be evidence in the Greco-Roman world that it had a lot of cultic phenomena and a lot of mystical ecstasies, and those were making them into the church. Those people, right, they're really in touch with the Spirit. They're, they're super enlightened, like super Christians. Again, the question is true spirituality manifest in these demonstrations of these spiritual manifestations. What is true spirituality? So Paul's trying to correct them and he helps us along the way. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Why were they unaware? Verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Verse 2 tells us that it was their former life of paganism and that's not hard to understand Paul's pointing them back to the time of spiritual darkness he's contrasting the the folly of their paganism past life and the joy of true spirituality he's pointing them back to the days when they were slaves to their idols that's what he says in this passage when they were under the control of stone or wood they were enslaved Brian Rosner in his helpful commentary on 1 Corinthians says this, the point would be that the Corinthians pre-conversion 
pre-Christian spiritual experiences were thoroughly marked by deception. It's not as though some of their experiences were valid and others were not. Their previous spiritual experience is completely untrustworthy as a guide in the ways of the one true God they have now come to know in and through Christ. So if you think about paganism, it should remind us of verses like Isaiah 44, 12. It's, it's a long passage, but, but it would serve us well, 12 and following. Thinking about idolatry. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. So labor. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in his house, a piece of wood, an idol. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Takes a while for it to grow, this laborious idol making. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake, break, to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats his meat and roasts or roasts and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. That's Isaiah 44. Very specific way God speaks about making an idol. Habakkuk 2 says very much the same thing. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood, for its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. It's a mute stone. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. Do you see the folly and the foolishness? The man-centered wisdom? A speechless piece of wood? There's no breath in these things. The paganism of the Greco-Roman world was completely, what they had come out of, was completely untrustworthy for these who had come to faith in Christ and were now set free. They only led them astray. Well, do you remember the folly, beloved? It's easy to ask, do you see the folly? But it's good for us to think about our own souls in this previous life. Do you remember the folly of the spiritual darkness? Now, perhaps it wasn't idols of wood or stone, but we all had something that we fashioned. Maybe it was the God of our imagination. Habakkuk 2 describes us as well. Mute idols, speechless, deliver us, but they couldn't speak back. Did you not trust in creation and worship creation rather than the creator? Which is what Romans 1 says about our previous plight. We who are not free in Christ were once held captive by our idols. We lived in the ruin of our sin. That was past life, past tense. But the same folly of paganism describes who we are. So that's the contrast. That's the contrast. The folly of pagan spirituality versus true spirituality. So when we think about that, what happened? What happened from spiritual darkness to light? 
The same thing that happened to the Corinthians happened to us. A transformation. A spiritual transformation. Where does true spirituality come from? A Holy Spirit wrought transformation. That is Paul's main point in ours in these first three passages as we think about true spirituality. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. True spirituality, Christianity, flows out of a heart that was once dead but now made alive by the Holy Spirit. A completely new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 The old is gone and the new has come. One who has placed their faith in the risen Christ and repented of their sins will proclaim, not just with mouth, but mouth attached to a heart that's been changed, Jesus is Lord. This is our confession. Not Jesus is accursed. The Spirit would never do that. He would cease to be God. Paul's not speaking about some super Christianity here when he speaks about true spirituality. It's, it's not some kind of second tier spiritual life. Paul has in mind the Christian life, the heart that has been awakened by the Holy Spirit to see the sinfulness of sin and to run headlong by faith to King Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. This Jesus, God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, the perfect Son of God, the mediator between God and man, the sinless sacrifice, absorbing the holy wrath of a holy God on behalf of sinners like us, the righteous one who exchanged his righteousness for our sins, the one who was raised on the third day for our justification. Romans 8 tells us Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. This gospel, this is the creed of true spirituality. He says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Kim Riddlebarger, who's a pastor and scholar, said this in his commentary notes. Since it is the Holy Spirit who enables us to make this confession, in these verses, Paul sets forth one of the clearest declarations in all the Bible that the only reason any of Adam's fallen children is a Christian is because the Holy Spirit enabled us to confess Jesus as Lord. To truly confess Jesus as Lord is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The only reason, the only reason paganism to life is because 2 Corinthians 4.6 happened to you. 2 Corinthians 4.6, the creator God who said let there be light in the new creation deep down in your soul shone his light, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let there be light in that soul new creation that's the only reason we sang this morning oh the chains are released I can say that I am free yet not I but through Christ in me the Christian in its simplest definition is a Christ follower Jesus tells Peter at the end of John 21 you follow me the Holy Spirit is he who has indwelt the Christian and according to John 16 that was prayed earlier In our prayer meeting, he guides, he speaks, he glorifies, and discloses the things of Christ. There is no other Savior, there's no other King. Jesus is the one who was spoken of long ago, and he's the one who is reigning now 
as his people wait for his return. If you're a Christian, 1 Thessalonians, we preached it last year, this happened to you, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come you're no longer led astray by idols but serve a living and true God and are waiting from his son from heaven well friend if you're visiting this morning perhaps you're wondering why all this conversation about paganism maybe you've heard all these things 150 times in today's 151 or perhaps you're among us and you've only heard this this first time what I'm describing about paganism is indeed the human condition apart from Jesus the Bible says in so many different ways that we are all pagans in our natural state we've all sinned against a holy God our first parents who we talked about earlier Adam and Eve were led astray into captivity by their own idols fashioning as they were wood and stone serving and worshiping the creation rather than the creator when they ate the forbidden fruit and Romans 5 tells us generation to generation to generation just handing the idol to the next generation idol worshipers sin spiritual death it all spread Ephesians 2 says that the pagan loves their sin they don't care about the things of God and because we're sinners you're under his wrath his eyes are too pure to look at sin and sin has brought about spiritual death this is the folly of worldly wisdom this is captivity slavery but there is one there is one and only one who came into the world to save those kinds of people people like you people like me and try as we may to work ourselves to this holy God with this scale good bad there's there's no good the Bible says there's none good no not one we can't work our way there there are no works we don't have any goodness the reality is is that we need someone else's goodness we need God's the Bible says that this Jesus came into the world he was just and he died for the unjust to bring us back to God he was the perfect man who never sinned and again this is good news because we need another's goodness we need his goodness and he died on the cross as we've said he was treated like the sinner he absorbed God's wrath and his sacrifice for sin was accepted because God raised him from the dead and now he's seated up on high at the right hand highly exalted Isaiah 61 says that this Jesus was the one who would come to proclaim the good news to give sight to the blind to preach captivity to the captives free the prisoners that's what we're talking about the Bible says that if sinners turn repentance towards God and trust in this Jesus alone put all their hope in Christ they'll be forgiven he'll declare them righteous he'll robe them in Jesus's righteousness and this is where the good confession Jesus is Lord comes from a life transformed by the Holy Spirit by the power of the gospel so if you don't know this Jesus turn to him today by faith and repent of your sin and he will have you 
Well, Paul wants the Corinthians to understand this about true spirituality. The Lord Christ is the starting point where spiritual things are understood. The Lord Christ is the starting point of where spiritual things are understood. Who is spiritual? The one who has the Holy Spirit. The Christian. And the one who has the Spirit lives a life centered on the rule and reign of King Jesus. Well, let's consider point number two as we look at verses 4 through 11. True spirituality manifests the Spirit. So if true spirituality, if the mark of true spirituality is a life centered on Jesus, true spirituality manifests the Spirit. I'm taking this from verse 7, but the surrounding verses also speak into this manifestation of the Spirit. Verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord, and there are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things and all persons, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul here is telling us like he did in verses 1 through 3 that true spirituality, authentic spirituality, is marked by something. It's marked by the centrality of Jesus, and now Paul tells us that it's marked by the distribution of gifts from the Spirit to believers for their use in the body for the common good. So true believers are those who have the Holy Spirit and they've been made alive. The Spirit is shown or manifested in our lives when we exercise our love by serving one another with our gifts for the common good or for another's profit. That is a mark of authentic Christianity. Authentic spirituality, that's normal. That's, again, that's not super Christian stuff. Paul's not speaking about that. It's not second-tier Christianity. When we use our gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to us for the good of the body, we show, we show that we are indeed indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about when he says, to each one. Who's that, Paul? Oh, all those in verse 3. The Christian, those who are spiritual. Now, if Christians have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit, at least one gift, maybe more, what do we know about them from these passages? Well, have you ever taken one of those spiritual gift inventories? I know I have. Typically in the quiet of your home, never in the congregation, right? In your home, filling it out. Oh, I must have the gift of mercy. Oh, look, I guess if I add this and this and I add this up, I have the gift of hospitality. Thank you, spiritual gift inventory. That's not what Paul's doing here. The weight of the passage is not on discovering your gifts, though that's not a bad thing, or, or using this list to do that, beginning in verse 8 when he lists gifts. The emphasis is verse 7, showing the Spirit in serving one another for the benefit of the body. The, the emphasis is on the Spirit divvying up in his own wisdom the gifts to the body so that the body would build the body up. Well, look back at verse Four, just some things we see. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Two, there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. And then in verse 11, the Spirit distributes to each one individually just as he wills. Here Paul reminds us as we consider the gifts that there are varieties of gifts which the Spirit distributes, distributes, to each one as he wills. How many gifts are there? Short answer, I don't know. I don't think Paul knew. There's lists all over the scriptures. We get this list here. 
12, 28, Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, if you go and look at those, there's, there's lists of gifts everywhere. This is not an exhaustive list. And again, his emphasis is not to provide a spiritual gift test or to help them discern if they have the gift of tongues. He is most interested in pointing to the Spirit's activity and manifested diversity which accompanies the Spirit's bestowing of such gifts. And these gifts and their diversity are meant to serve the unity of the body which we will see in weeks to come as the rest of the verses are preached. Well, who works the multiple effects to accomplish his purposes? It tells us that God, verse 6, works all things and all purposes. So do you see the emphasis with the gifts on God? It is God who is active in and through the bestowing and empowering of the gifts. He gives. Gifts, ministry, service, effects. It's his design. He empowers. He is the active party, not us. This is his work, and we are his people, and we have been given gifts. Charismata, charis, grace, they're grace gifts. He's given us grace gifts to use in the body. And in these gifts and these ministries that we've been given, we actually serve the Lord in our ministries as we serve one another. We don't conjure up the gift. We don't bait God to give us a better gift. He graciously gives to all of us. Well, one commentator said this was very helpful. The gathering of the church, think about our worship service this morning. The gathering of the church for worship is not merely a matter of a group of human beings coming together to practice certain traditions or a liturgy, but entails the presence and activity of God himself in and through the people as they worship and build each other up in his presence. This is what we want here. To the degree that in chapter 14, verse 26, an unbeliever comes into the service and falls on his face, worshiping God and declares, God is certainly among the people. Because of God being present, spirit manifestation by the people serving one another for the common good. That's the manifestation. That's what it's doing. It's showing the spirit. It's showing God is present among the people. We're not at a conference here. It's not me talking and you talking back. We've talked about uh, in our day, you've heard Jordan talk about how weird it is. It's monologue, but we're, we're, we're worshiping. And it's said almost every week when the service leader begins, we meet to worship, whether we're here in this gym or a tree outside or down the street or at Bridges or wherever we're at, the new community in Christ gathers to worship, to worship God. Well, a mark of true spirituality is the manifestation of the Spirit of God. And finally, point number three, true spirituality seeks to lovingly serve others. It's the end of verse 7, so we could have said it earlier. We said it in different ways. But true spirituality seeks to lovingly serve others. So if the Spirit is manifest, we know that the aim is for the common good. So I mainly want to highlight the purpose of the gifts that Paul is highlighting. A mark of true spirituality which differs from the pagan spirituality which sought to serve self is to serve others. The common good means really with a view to profit, to profit another, or what is beneficial, the 
the common good. So many of the Corinthians were using their gifts in an inappropriate way and they were bringing attention to themselves or to serve their own self-gratification. But the function of the gifts, as Paul tells us, is to serve others. They're used to edify and build up. Things that we can be sure of based on these passages, the Spirit does not give gifts to us so that we can boast in ourselves. There's no place in exercising the gifts for self-exaltation It's to make his present known, we've already said that, to show the spirit for the good of others in the body and to serve the unity of the body, the function of the gifts, the common good. Ephesians 4 was one of those gift passages I mentioned earlier, the one where he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until... We all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And when we get down to the end of that passage, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Paul's saying the same thing in Ephesians 4. Our gifts are for the common good. It's the new community. This one body with many members. Pastor Nathan will talk about that next week. Where we see these gifts being used to serve one another in love. Q, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's coming too. Notice what he says. He doesn't say they're for the common division. The the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be used to serve the unity of the church. We are many members here, but our gifts have been divided and bestowed and energized by God to be used in such a way and at the right time for the right ministry for his glory. So it's not to bring attention to ourselves. It's not watch this mystical thunder as I exercise my gift I'm about to drop. It's for the upbuilding of the church, which shows the spirit, as it were. It points to the sufficiency of our glorious Jesus, the head of the church. And it clearly points us to the work of the triune God in the church. It's very clear from our passage. We haven't touched on it much, but there in verse 4, we see the spirit. Verse 5, the Lord. And verse 6, we have our God. All of them. The triune God working to build the new community up in love. Well, if true spirituality is marked by a Christocentric confession in our living, not just our mouths with our confession, but from a heart that has been transformed, it makes sense that we will exercise our gifts, Paul says, in a way that manifests the Spirit of God. They will serve others and they'll aim to influence the unity, not disunity, that's what Paul's speaking against of the body, which ultimately all glory and honor God. It's, it's individual gifts for the corporate good. It's diversity that serves the unity. Well, before we close, just a few applications, just a few comments to help us. Number one, in, in what ways are you using your gifts at Grace Church? It's a good question for all of us to ask. Do you pay attention to others. Now that's not a go home and feel guilty. That's not my intent. It's to bring it again to the forefront like Paul is doing for us. In what ways are we using our gifts? Now as we move through these chapters, there'll be more color 
filled in in the black and white of what's prophecy and how do we desire it and what is this gift and what is this gift. But our focus this morning is just considering the, the Spirit's work in dispensing gifts for the good of the church. Well, is your heart focus others-oriented, individual or corporate? The reality is, is that the body's been built up today. I don't know if you've caught that, but that is true. Here we are worshiping him. Gifts have been exercised in love, many different gifts in many different ways, and we've all been edified. That's a reality. We're experiencing together today, right now, and will as we continue, the grace of God, mutually, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are in this list that Paul gives. Some of you are in other places, and some of your gifts may not even be named in the Scriptures. But the reality is, is that God has gifted you with gifts. Today, some needed encouragement, and boom, the gift of encouragement came. Some needed help, and the gift of help came. Some needed to be pointed to the Savior because they were convicted about something, and someone pointed them there. Someone needed a loving embrace, mercy, and that was given to them. This morning as I was prepping, as the singers were singing, uh, little, little Trinity Evans was very unhappy that her mom was up here and she was not. And uh, Emily Bailey walked that stroller around and, and served her, and I don't know what that gift is. We all probably have it. We can push a stroller. Perhaps it's mercy or help. But it's pointed even to the ground level of practicing and, and, and working on that to edify the body as we, as we come together. So even something as small as that, we're all gifted and we all are to serve for the common good. Number two, as pastors, I just want to say this, we have the weighty privilege to know many things about you and the congregation and the flock. We don't know everything, but one thing I can say that I know about all of you is you are all gifted. You have all been gifted by the Holy Spirit. If he has indwelt you, this verse says that you've been given at least one gift and probably more. That's what his word says. You may say, well, I don't speak well. I'm not a great communicator. So what? You have a gift somewhere. Or you may say, uh, um, I'm not good at getting up in front of people and talking. Well, the Spirit has sovereignly placed a gift in you to minister to this congregation. But to one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills, is what verse 11 says. You're gifted. He's gifted you with his wisdom and how he dispenses, his divine uh, dispensing, he's given you these gifts. He doesn't seek out the most spiritual, the most socially connected people to give gifts to. That's partly what some of the Corinthians were thinking, and that's what Paul pushed against number three all of this should humble us there's no boasting in this that's what was happening there the fact that we do not twist the arm of God to give us a gift some kind of incantation that we perform to get a better gift we had nothing to do with it out of the abundance of the supply of Christ the Holy Spirit gives us with gifts to use for the common good no one's left out you ever been in those lines where you're all the way down there somebody's handing something out and you're in the back of the line and you finally get up there and they say I'm sorry we don't have any more or maybe they give you one that isn't really as good as what everybody else got but they, they feel bad God does not do that <laughs> we have all been given gifts no one has been left out 
and we're all needed. We're all needed. That's, the, that's what Nathan's going to pick up on next week. We're all needed. This thing called community doesn't work unless we're all in together. Number four, I would just encourage you to marvel again at the gospel. We say this every week in different ways. And I realize that we're doing that even now, but have you ever thought that 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3 would be ammunition to just marvel again and preaching the gospel to yourself that you were once led astray by your pagan idols and your allegiance has changed because the Holy Spirit has changed your heart and given you a new allegiance called King Jesus? So marvel at his grace again. And then lastly, as we close. As we begin looking at these chapters, please, please, please acquaint yourself with the Holy Spirit. You're already spiritually acquainted with Him because He's indwelt you. Before, before the service, Rick came up to me, we were talking, and he says, own the reality that God lives inside you. Meditate on that. Own the reality that God lives inside you and expect Him to work. Now, given the extreme charismatic culture of the day, we're often afraid of the Spirit, right? We run to the other side. Well, he's the third person of the Trinity. He loves to throw his light on Jesus. Yes. Verse 3. But he's not self-effacing, right? The Spirit exalts Christ, but we're to make the Spirit visible as we, as we serve one another with our gifts. So let's not be afraid of these chapters but embrace the work of the Spirit. It should cause us to understand our dependence on Him all the more. As Charles Simeon said in his sermon on this passage, He who converted thousands of them in one single day can work effectively on us also and accomplish in us all that our necessities require. We need the Holy Spirit. Beloved, we're supernatural people. The church is supernatural. Meditate on that. We're not meant to do this thing called the Christian life in our own strength, and these chapters will highlight that. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our ministry. If we don't have Him, then what do we have? We're just running around in our own strength, not really serving anybody, and certainly not bringing honor to our God. Well, last as we close. Let me say this before we close, and this will be expounded on the weeks to come. It's not a sensationalism or grand, thunderous, dramatic theme of gifts that primarily characterize the gifts. Certainly there are, are uh, miraculous gifts. But even taking this list, which isn't exhaustive here, one can see the, the, the gift of wisdom, faith, discernment, gifts of service. There, there certainly are miraculous gifts. But beloved, ordinary typifies the gifts. It's those things that transform us when we gather and work together for the glory of God. And again, that's happened today. Well, God has gifted you. Be amazed at his diverse giving up of the gifts. Be amazed at his wisdom in dispensing the grace in gifting this to this person and gifting this to this person, all fitting together perfectly, growing us down in the good soil of the gospel for the building up of the body in love. Well, next week, Pastor Nathan will continue our study in verse 12 through verse 31 as we consider how the gifts actually function in the body of Christ. We are one body but many members. Well, may God help us to be doers of his word. Let's pray together.
God, we are thankful for your word, and we know that your word does not go out without accomplishing all that you desire. Holy Spirit, we, we thank you for gifting us, for indwelling us, and for dispensing gifts sovereignly by your wisdom. We do pray that our body would manifest the Spirit and that we would serve in the strength that you supply and that we would be marked as a body who use our gifts for the common good, for the edification of the saints, for the honor, the glory of God, and for the testimony of the gospel that goes out from here. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.